0: In June 2020, NASCAR did what many thought was impossible. It banned the Confederate flag. The symbol had been tied to the sport since its inception, and it would no longer be welcomed in racing. Just last week, Kyle Larson became the first non-white driver to win the coveted Cup Series. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Over the course of the last 73 years, NASCAR has only fielded eight black drivers for its top league. Today, we take a second listen to a show we ran in July. We'll hear from former NASCAR driver Bill Lester about the challenges he faced racing in a white-dominated sport. But first, Daniel McFadden is lead reporter and editor for FrontStretch.com. He's host of the NASCAR podcast, dropping the hammer. He's covered NASCAR's efforts to be more inclusive. Daniel, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for
1: having me, Kalilah.
0: You know, a lot of our listeners here in the Northeast may not be as familiar with NASCAR as those of us who grew up in the South. And for a lot of people outside of that scope, they see NASCAR as the sport that only appeals to white, rural, Southern audiences and perhaps they may think that NASCAR is hostile to people who don't fit that demographic. What's the basis of that stereotype? And do you think it's a fair or accurate depiction of NASCAR's fan base?
1: Uh, I don't think it's a fair or accurate description of the moment, um, but I, I, I think it's honest to say that there is some truth to that from in the past. The the only black man who's ever won a uh, a NASCAR Cup race anyway, uh, Wendell Scott he won a race in I believe Jacksonville, Florida in the early '60s. The race officials uh, refused to award him the trophy until the predominantly white audience <laughs> left the track an hour or so later because they were they were afraid of a white riot. This is a a sport that um, up until the mid '80s had a a race called the Rebel 400 at Darlington Raceway in South Carolina. Up until June of last year, the Confederate flag was a very welcome symbol, uh, a tolerated symbol anyway, at NASCAR tracks all all across the country, not just in the South. You you would see, you'd see that flag flying in the infield in California. So there there are reasonable reasons that uh, someone, maybe a person of color wouldn't have wanted, wouldn't have found NASCAR a welcome sport You know, I I grew up in
0: Virginia, not too far from Danville, where Wendell Scott was born and raised. And so he is this legend of NASCAR in Virginia. But as you said, this was not just a Southern tension, that this became something in various spaces that in some ways was also a way for fans to come together and be separate or escape from some of those bigger questions and bigger challenges. And yet, although the fan base today is about 80% white people, we're starting to see increases in black and brown fans of the sport, as well as people getting interested in other ways. What do you think about today in terms of what's driving some of that interest in the sport from people who don't fit the traditional demographic of NASCAR fans?
1: Well, I think primarily, and not primarily, at least one reason, um, you have Bubba Wallace in, in the NASCAR Cup Series. He's the first full time black driver uh, in the Cup Series since Wendell Scott. Uh, he he. That was in the early '70s when he stopped racing. You have Daniel Suarez, who's a Hispanic driver. You have Kyle Larson right now, who's the most right now is the most the hottest driver in NASCAR right now, and he's he's Japanese American. Right now, at at this moment in time, you're we're experiencing the most diverse that NASCAR has ever been. Um, just like saying that the the best driver in NASCAR right now is Asian American, Japanese American. You couldn't have said that ten years ago. And I think that people, I would hope that people in like minority communities are seeing this and realizing that it's not just a completely white sport like it was 20 years ago. It's The sport has been working towards diversity in many ways in the last 20 years through programs like the Drive for Diversity, uh, the NASCAR internship program, which is diversity based, Um, but they really ratcheted it up. Last June, when they, they banned the Confederate flag, they took their open stance uh, against racism, which th- that's a very big deal. When especially when back in 1968, you're building a track in, t- in Alabama, and in Talladega, locked arm in arm with George Wallace. Um, so it, it's very, vi- we're a very different territory than we were. And there's lots of reasons for the sport to, to be happy with the decision they made. Just looking at numbers, you, you got your 80% number white. Uh, in the last three years, the number of fans coming into the sport are 50% people of color, uh, 23% Hispanic, 17% Black, 10% Asian, Pacific Islander. Um, and those fans are eight times more likely to approve of NASCAR's stance against racism it's social justice moves that it's made in last year so the, we're we're seeing change and i don't think we're going to fully see the impact of nascar's moves in the last year for a few more years
0: so you mentioned a lot of names you mentioned a number of initiatives that have helped those names sort of rise to public awareness and i want to come back to that but daniel i want to ask you a really basic question what is it about NASCAR that appeals to you? You know, our, our listeners can't see it, but when I asked you that question, your whole face just lit up. <laughs> what is it about NASCAR and its appeal?
1: Well, um, I, I, oh yeah, I, I've lived my entire life except for one year, uh, in the south. Um, I was raised in North Texas. I went to my first. My dad took me to my first NASCAR race at, in 1997. At uh, Texas Motor Speedway, so it was the first NASCAR Cup race at Texas Motor Speedway. Um, there, there is nothing quite like when forty stock cars roar by at the same time for the first time <laughs> at the green flag. Uh, it's it's a sensation that you, you cannot get from TV. Um, you, you're not gonna uh, you're just, you're not gonna get it from any other other sport. Um, I, I love. Uh, I've always loved rooting for the people, um, the drivers, um, the personalities. Everyone, everyone's, the detractors will say, oh, you're only turning left. Well, okay, turn left at 180 miles per hour uh, with another car two inches off you. Um, it's, not, it's not easy. Um, and ro- rooting for the people inside that car, people people you, you have your reasons for liking, your reasons for hating, it's like any other sport. Um, but th- there's multiple layers to it: sponsors, manufacturers. That that's many. The, there's lots of people who follow NASCAR who specifically root for teams because of the car they drive. So um, I've never been one of those people. I'm more personality person. Um, but uh, it's it it's different from different people. But I, I I got into it at a very young age age, and except for a brief lapse. During my high school years, I've pretty much been a lifelong uh, NASCAR fan and now journalist.
0: One of the things that I find so fascinating about the entire enterprise of NASCAR is that, as you said, there's the driver and there's the personality. One of those drivers that people are starting to talk about, you know, all the drivers that I grew up watching have retired or passed on, but someone that a lot of, of younger fans are talking about is Chase Elliott. Who is Chase Elliott in the world of NASCAR?
1: Well, he he he's the son of former cup champion and NASCAR Hall of Famer Bill Elliott. He's the defending uh, cup champion. Uh, he's, according to NASCAR fans, you know, within the bubble, um, he, he's the most popular NASCAR driver. Uh, at least for the last uh, three years, fans have latched on to Chase Elliott because of his connection to the sports past. His dad, uh, awesome Bill from Dawsonville. Uh, Bill Elliott was the most popular driver in NASCAR for years. I I, love, I can't remember the exact number, but like double digit years, he was the most popular driver. <laughs> but like within within the sport, yeah, uh, Chase Elliott is, as voted on by NASCAR fans, the most popular driver, but he's not even the most uh, recognizable name to the general public. The most recognizable NASCAR driver was Bubba Wallace. Um, and you couldn't, you wouldn't have been able to probably say that uh, before last spring. But after everything that happened last year, uh, he was in the headlines constantly. So um, it's in the bubble. It's Chase Elliott. Outside the bubble, it's Bubba Wallace. If
0: Bubba Wallace is not the most recognizable inside the bubble, what do you think it means for NASCAR that he's had all of this outside the bubble attention
1: and prominence? Bubba Wallace is a lightning rod that that I- anytime. A story gets published at frontstretch.com about him. The, the comment section lights up with colorful conversation. P- people don't like him. There's people who don't like him, but there's people who do like him. He He's driving something right now. Um, if, if, it, if it's not for Bubba Wallace calling for NASCAR to ban the Confederate flag in June of last year, it's quite possible that Michael Jordan isn't his current team owner um, at 2311 Racing. Uh, it's quite possible that P- Pitbull isn't the co owner of Daniels Torres' team. Um, so I, I honestly don't think either of those things happen if he doesn't do that. But a lot of fans, diehard fans, associate Bubba Wallace with getting rid of their flag that they, they like They like displaying proudly at NASCAR tracks. They, they feel like it's um, an attack on them. To, because they can't bring their their, their flag to, to the track or or whatever, and like you mentioned the news incident, a lot there was a lot of confusion around that. Uh, pe- people who think it was a hoax when it just wasn't. That's not what happened. Um, it was a mistake. Um, but he 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 is the most he he's Bubba Wallace is a sign of the future of NASCAR. What NASCAR wants. Um, NASCAR does not want to be associated with like we, what we started out talking about, the, that racially uh, charged past, that racist past that it had connections to. They, they want to be a diverse sport, they, and they're doing that. The, the moves they're making are working so far.
0: What do you think is is prompting that change? Because NASCAR has also been the space where, you know, the Confederate flag was the symbol because people said, this is about heritage and history. This is not about hate. And at the same time, NASCAR has pioneered this Drive for Diversity program to increase representation, not just uh, of drivers, but of people throughout the entire system and the entire organization. And at the same time, as you see this, you know, diversifying audience and a a drive for diversity with drivers you're also hearing this controversy with comments made by Kyle Larson and having a sensitivity program for this driver for using a slur through an esports game what then is driving NASCAR to say this is the future that we want to work toward even if it takes us a while and fits and starts to get to that goal
1: well, for, for, for the last 10 years, uh, NASCAR in, in a public sphere had kind of been in a free fall. Declining, re- declining ratings, declining attendance, just declining attention just in general. But that's started to change in this last couple of years. Ratings leveled out. The crowd started to level out. Um, and then l- last June happened, and which happened m- months after the Kyle Larson incident. It could be argued that, that the Kyle Larson... Kyle Larson racial, racial slur incident set the sport back years and it's in how the public perceived it. And then what happened in June of last year could argue it leapfrogged it back to where it was. And then some, um, so I think for a long Steve Phelps said earlier this year that for a long time, they were all about just staying with who they still had when it came to their fan base we we just we, we we they were so scared of losing anybody else i especially when it comes to the confederate flag i don't think it was part of their calculus that they could stand to gain more fans than they would lose just by simply banning the confederate flag from all of its facilities there's so many positive things going on right now in terms of audience either nascar either reestablishing itself with a national audience You you can point to the decisions made in June of 2020 and realize it's working. You're gaining more than you would have lost. The the people who are coming in are hopefully either taking over the spots of the people who left or and then building on it. So it's there's lots of positive vibes in the sport right now that haven't been there um, for about 10 years.
0: Let's talk about one of those positive vibes that is encouraging to many people and that people are excited about the possibility. And that is actually the cars themselves, this new generation of cars that may be somewhat cheaper to produce, but could also create more opportunities for people to come into the sport. Talk to us about that plan and what you think it may mean for the future of NASCAR.
1: Well, what you're talking about is the next gen car. Um, it is quite simply the biggest shift technologically in NASCAR in its 70 year plus history. Um, for one, one, there's there's lots of new things on this car. There's going to be a, a composite body. Uh, there's a, a independent rear suspension, lug nuts instead of there being five on a wheel, there's only going to be one. Uh, it there's so there's a lot more to it, but quite simply, th- like you said, this is in an effort to make the sport cheaper to be to compete in, And that's one reason why you're seeing 2311 debuted this year, track house racing this year. Um, you have other teams coming up from the smaller series up to the cup series simply because it's going to be cheaper to compete. There's individual independent uh, provider of parts vendors. So teams aren't going to have to be built, making their own parts for these cars. Um, you're seeing an an influx of new teams into the sport for next year specifically, then you're seeing more than you've seen since the early 2000s.
0: So Daniel, you've piqued my interest even more, and I'm someone who grew up watching NASCAR. What would you say to someone who's listened to this conversation and said, you know, there's something there that I'm curious about. What do you say to a novice about, encouraging them to watch their first race or what they should be looking for as they do
1: it. Just watch, give, give, give it a shot. Um, <laughs> this year, at least it was branded by Fox sports. It was branded as the, the best season ever um, because this, this season, this, the schedule was just overhauled in a way that hadn't been done since 1972. You're going to new markets like Austin, Texas, road, America, a return to Nashville for the first time since 1984. Um, there's lots of new stuff this year. I, I've considered 2021 to be like a Christmas tree with lots of different gifts un- underneath it. So I, I would recommend just just tuning in. Um, y- y- it, it might be confusing at first. There's there's going to be a lot to watch. It, yeah, just give it a shot.
0: Well, here's to new experiences. Daniel McFadden is lead reporter and editor for Front Stretch. He's also host of the NASCAR podcast, Dropping the Hammer. Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you. For links to Daniel's work, including his five-part series on the impact of the flag ban on NASCAR, you can visit our website at ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Coming up, we hear from former NASCAR driver, Bill Lester, on his experience being black in motorsports. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This past March, former NASCAR driver, Bill Lester, was introduced at the Atlanta Motor Speedway. He was booed by many of the fans in attendance. As one of the only black racers to ever compete in the sport, Lester has grown accustomed to this reaction. Bill spent over 10 years in NASCAR with seven career top 10 finishes in the truck series. And he recently wrote a new book called Winning in Reverse. Bill, welcome to Disrupted.
2: Thanks, appreciate being here with you.
0: You know, you have had this career as a NASCAR driver. You have pushed boundaries and broken barriers throughout that career but you actually started your career as an engineer in Silicon Valley. Talk to us about how your childhood shaped your interest in racing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you know, when I was a young boy, like five, six, seven years old, my parents told me I didn't go anywhere without a Hot Wheels or a Matchbox car in my hands. I just love cars and I love speed. I love anything that had to do with, you know, going fast. I love roller coasters as a kid. I love riding my bike fast whatever the case is, but I really love racing cars. And uh, my father took me to a race in Northern California where I was growing up at a track called Laguna Seca in Monterey. And that was where the hook was set. I mean, I saw these cars blowing by me 160, 170, 180 miles an hour. And the sound of it, the uh, sight of it, the smell of it, just everything was intoxicating to me. And so I knew from a very young age that being a race car driver was something that would be appealing to me. But Needless to say, I never knew that it would be something that I would really try to pursue with all my heart and my ambition. I mean, that was something that as a young boy, I said, wow, it'd be cool. But I didn't see anybody who looked like me or my father at this event. You know, everybody was white, white male particularly. And I was like, well, you know, I don't know if it's achievable or not. But at that age, you don't really think about that sort of thing. But you do make the mental note. You realize that there's not a whole lot of people around here that look like you or sound like you for that matter. And so, you know, I realized at a very young age that I had a passion for something and it just took me a long time to realize my
0: passion. No, racing has never been a very diverse sport at that level. And you talked about not seeing people in the sport who looked like you. But I imagine that at that time, there were not a lot of people in Silicon Valley who looked like you or had your experience either. How did navigating that space prepare you to enter into racing.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I remember when I got my bachelor's of science in electrical engineering and computer science at Cal Berkeley, when I looked all around me to the graduating classes of about 600 engineers, I really didn't see anybody else that looked like me. I mean, I could probably count the number of those engineers on one hand. And then when I went into, you know, the high tech industry and worked for Hewlett Packard in Silicon Valley, um, Again, you know, I was typically very one of very few that was doing software development, and then when I quickly became a research and development project manager, I would typically be the only manager in the room. And, you know, that was good preparation for me right. in terms of, you know, what I was going to experience in racing because again, you know, there were not very many African Americans in motorsports, even at the amateur level when I first started before turning professional. You know, when I went through Sports Car Club of America Driving school, I was basically the only one there. And I was like, my gosh. And, you know, I had people coming up to me and going, you know, why are you here? I'm like, well, I'm trying to get my the racing license. And they're like, well, you guys don't race. I was astounded by somebody having the audacity to say something like that. Now, of course I was an anomaly, but for them to say, you guys don't race to me. It's like, okay, well, guess what? I'm gonna prove you differently. And so, um, no, I mean, my story is one of overcoming obstacles and breaking barriers and something I didn't start out, you know, with the intention of doing, you know, I really, I just wanted to be a race car driver. I didn't know there were going to be so many barriers to entry and such that I would have to overcome. But, you know, even when I was, um, you know, going through amateur racing school, when I was going through my engineering career, all that stuff just set me up in terms of when I had to move from the Northwest to the deep South to race in NASCAR, because you can't race NASCAR from the Bay Area. you got to come down to where NASCAR is based. The roots of the sport are basically in North Carolina, effectively Charlotte and Mooresville. And so when my wife and I moved from California to come to the Southeast, we wanted to at least be in the biggest metropolitan area in the Southeast we could be at or be in, and we chose Atlanta. Because when we went and looked at North Carolina in 2000, We didn't see anything but, you know, hay fields and, you know, farming and all sorts of stuff that we were not comfortable with or had any familiarization with. You know, we are born and raised as, you know, suburban city, you know, people. You know, my wife born and raised in San Francisco. I grew up primarily between San Jose, California and Oakland, California. And so when you come to the southeast and you see all this land and trees and, you know, sprawling acres, you know, it's like, wow, this is, you know, Very, very different than what we were used to. So we wanted to be in an area that we felt comfortable in. And so we chose Atlanta because we knew in terms of, you know, diversity that Atlanta was a cultural melting pot. So we felt if we were going to be anywhere, Atlanta was a place for us to be. And we chose Atlanta. But then when, you know, I would go to the race shops and deal with the race teams that I raced for, whether it was in Tennessee with Bobby Hamilton racing or um, High Point, North Carolina with Bill Davis racing. I mean, again, you know, these were just very, very unfamiliar grounds to us and to me in particular. And so basically having that relationship with my team was something that was extremely challenging because i come from a completely different background. You know, I was very white collar in terms of my education, in terms of my upbringing and the teams that I was working with. These guys were very blue collar. I mean, you know, taking nothing away from them, but this was their way of life in terms of getting into racing. They grew up turning wrenches and working for their, you know, father's garages or gas stations or whatever, being mechanics. You know, they, most of them, I would say, I would say the majority of them were non-college educated. You know, I mean, if they got through high school, that was a good thing for them. and But that prepared them for what they wanted to do in terms of their racing avocation, which was being a mechanic or what have you. What have you. I wanted to be a race car driver. I didn't want to turn wrenches. I didn't like turning wrenches. I like turning the steering wheel.
0: Let's talk about that turning and the transition because you talked about making the career transition. So you took the plunge in 1999, went full-time in 2002. You became a 40-year-old rookie in 2002. And so it was not just the transition to, this is my passion full-time, not just the transition to living in the Southeast. But there were also race and class based distinctions there that you're mentioning about how people come into the sport, but also how they see an outsider, if you will, coming into that space. What was that like so that you see these differences? But did you feel like people were welcoming or interested in you coming in or did you face resistance? (laughs) Well,
2: you know, the racism was very subtle. It wasn't really, you know, overt and in my face with regard to the racing teams and those that were in the NASCAR garage. In terms of the spectators and the fans, it was more, you know, in my face and and, and directed towards me. But um, it was a huge difference in what I was used to versus what I now was experiencing. I, I didn't know about the Southern culture and the Bible Belt, you know, mentality that the Deep South. Had at that point, which was very, very strong, very thick. Um, You know, a lot of yes, ma'am, yes, sir, and, you know, the way people greeted each other. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, very interesting. I knew about that. You know, I mean, I I wasn't completely naive about it. But when you come from the very liberal California and then Silicon based Bay Area, everything was pretty much free flowing and casual. Everything was first name basis. And, you know, everything was very formal (laughs) when I came to the South. And it was very unusual and strange for me. And I just wasn't used to referring to people as, you know, Mr. Somebody or miss somebody or or whatever, but okay. I learned to change my behavior for that because I'm the outsider. I'm the one who doesn't, you know, um, come from this background and I have to try to make these folks that I'm working with feel comfortable with me, you know? So it was very clear and very, different and, you know, very uncomfortable in a lot of senses, dealing with what I had to deal with. You know, I mean, um, I'm sure it was that difficult for those that came before me of color, although there weren't many. But I think that everybody who came before Bubba, you know, Daryl Wallace Jr., who's on the circuit right now, made it easier for him, you know. But for me, since the last African-American who raced in NASCAR at the cup level was 20 years before me, you know, again, there is a broad, um, I would say, um, void in terms of the NASCAR garage being used to somebody of color coming into their playground. So, yeah, in answer to your question, it was, it was difficult. It was quite an adjustment. I found it to be, um, you know, somewhat discouraging, and, and it was not the kind of pleasant scenario I was hoping it would be. But at the end of the day, I wanted to race at the top level of motorsports in this country. And at that time, NASCAR was the top level of motorsports in America. You know, it, it surpassed IndyCar, and open wheel, surpassed sports car racing, drag racing, all the other different forms of racing. Everybody knew about what NASCAR was. And that's where the best drivers were considered to be racing. So that's why I wanted to be there. And if I had to change my behavior to be a part of that environment, that's what I had to do. and That's what I did
0: you know, Bill, I think one of the challenges is that people assume there's a passion, you work really hard, and you achieve this goal, and they see the success. But they don't always know the stories and the the obstacles that shaped that success. And one of the strengths of your book is that you are very candid about that, about the resistance that you encountered, not just from fans and from leadership, but also from people who were in the the racing world with you. And so I want to share with our listeners this passage from your book Where you say, images of a lawn jockey that had been dressed in my likeness, being burned, formed in my mind. Memories of NASCAR fans using the N-word floated through my brain. Visions of a red flag adorned with a blue cross being proudly waved in the stands flashed back to me. In the wake of all that had transpired over my years in racing, it was hard not to speculate that on some level racism existed in NASCAR. What was that disconnect for you between having these experiences, these emotions, and sort of your brain telling you racism is embedded here, but also understanding that you had this goal that would require you to persist through that in order to achieve what was important for you?
2: Yeah. You know, I always think about that phrase that, and I'm sure you've heard it too, you know. Those much is given, much is expected. And I feel that I was placed in the position I was placed in for a reason. You know, God gave me skills and ability that, you know, I didn't ask for, but I realized them. I realized that I was meant to race cars and he wouldn't put me in this position if he didn't believe that I could not make it. It was up to me to make it, to push through these difficulties, these challenges, you know, these hardships. And when I mean by hardships, I mean, you know, being left to feel that you are less than human. Again, when they burned that lawn jockey and effigy, I mean, I was astounded. I didn't see it, but I was told about it. You know, I didn't witness it, but I was told about it um, on very reliable sources. And so it was really just so disappointing to me that with all that I gave to the team and what I thought the team was giving to me, you know, I gave them my all and I was hoping for success for the team, that they would dishonor me that way once my time with them was over, once it had passed, because it said to me loud and clear that while they tolerated me, because I brought sponsorship to this team and I allowed them to eat, you know, I gave them jobs and careers and a financial future. At the end of the day, many of them did not respect me. They did not appreciate me. Um, I'm sure they would have been happier had I not come along at all. But, um, you know, I couldn't let that deter me. And it's hard for me to talk about that now because I try not to let let these disappointing and, and discouraging things bring me down. I try to, you know, compartmentalize these experiences. And it was hard for me to write about it in the memoir, but I wanted to be completely transparent and explain and express and share with the audience what it is I dealt with. Because you're right. Most people think that drivers they don't have anything difficult to do but drive the car. you know drive the race car. I can't be that hard. They don't realize what it takes to get behind the wheel. They don't realize that this sport is the culmination of three principles. politics, business, and then sport. And I think you know when I indicated that the politics of being able to get to be a race car driver, unless you're independently wealthy and you don't want for anybody's lack of I mean anybody's support, Somebody like me in the position I'm in, I have to get the sponsorship to be able to race. The sponsorship comes from the politics of the sport, which is that you have to be in the room. You have to be in an environment where you are around people that can make financial decisions that can help to benefit you to get to where you need to go. That's the handshaking and kissing babies. That's the politics. Then there's the business aspect of the sport, which is that once you get into that room and you have the attention of some. Fortune 500 company and the CEO or the CMO or the vice president of marketing, whatever you have to have that business case by which that company decides that they want to spend multi-million dollars supporting you as opposed to all the other, you know, sports marketing or other activities they could spend their marketing dollars on. That's the business aspect of it. You have to convince them that motorsports is the way to go. And me in particular, I'm their driver. And then if you are successful enough to accomplish those things, then you actually get to put on a hat, a helmet and drive a race car. Most people think it's easy, just jump in the race car and you go race. They don't understand how difficult it is to get in that very, very enviable position.
0: Bill Lester is a former NASCAR driver and author of the book, Winning in Reverse. After the break, we'll hear more from Bill about how current racers like Bubba Wallace are changing the sport forever. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. NASCAR has been dominated by white drivers and fans. And for many, there's a toxic culture of racism within the sport. We're speaking now with Bill Lester, a black driver who spent over a decade racing between NASCAR's three leagues. I asked him about politics in sports and what he would tell young athletes who may worry about fitting in.
2: I mean, it's all about passion. My journey was based on passion. If you believe in yourself, you have discovered what it is you want to do, you've been given a gift to do, the sort of thing that, you know, last thing you think about before you go to bed, the first thing you think about when you get up in the morning, something that is ingrained in you, instilled in you, and you believe in yourself, you can't let anybody deter you or distract you or knock you off your axis. And that is so important. That is what allowed me after all the discouragement, after all the doubters and naysayers weighed in to continue to get up in the morning and keep pushing towards that goal of being a race car driver. Even though I didn't see anybody else who looked like me successful at being able to do it. I knew that I could do it. I was given a gift and it was up to me to live that dream. It's all about, my memoirs. all about living your dream. You know, passion is key. Um, Getting out of your comfort zone, I mean, persistence, perseverance, the power of networking. I mean, the the importance of gratitude, being thankful for the things that you've been blessed with. I identify eight keys that allowed me to live my dream. And to anybody who's listening to this, if they believe in themselves and they have a goal, they can achieve it. I mean, it's not something that I'm talking about that is revolutionary. I mean, people have talked about this in the past, but I come from a slightly different background and path, right? A lot of the, and you mentioned sports, athletes that are of color are stick and ball sports, right? Or stick and ball athletes. And it's a very clearly prescribed path in terms of how to get there, in terms of going through high school, going through college, and all this sorts of ladder that you have to climb to get there. In motorsports, it's like the Wild West. There is no firmly defined path. You can come from a myriad of different uh, backgrounds and paths to get to NASCAR, for example. You can come from open wheel. You can come from sports cars, which is what I did. You can come from dirt and you know, sprint cars and midgets. You can come from all sorts of different disciplines. As long as you have the financial wherewithal to weather the storm, you can get there. And for me, the financial wherewithal came from the drive that I had to get there. I didn't have a checkbook, but I had the perseverance and the persistence and this dictuitiveness and the belief that if I quit, then I'm defeated. I couldn't quit. I didn't want to be defeated. I wanted to race professionally. It was something that was ingrained in me, instilled in me, and I had to realize it.
0: One of the things that seems to be a standout part of your career and your approach to your career is your interest in learning from, working with, and collaborating with other athletes. And you talked about stick and ball sports and how that seems to be the path. You talk in the book about thinking that you had found an ally and basketball legend, Magic Johnson. How does Magic Johnson come into your story of being a professional racer?
2: So at one point, NASCAR was, you know, making waves about its desire to diversify their sport. And they brought Magic Johnson in because of his business acumen. You know, Magic is an established, very successful businessman. And so they brought Magic in, and Magic came on board saying how he's always had an interest in NASCAR, which was news to me. But lo and behold, NASCAR, uh, NASCAR, and Magic are working together to provide opportunities for diverse audience for to diversify the audience. So I had the opportunity. To get together with Magic, we got together at a hotel and we had a meeting. And I expressed to Magic the difficulties and the challenges I was having in gaining the financial support to be able to continue in my quest, in my, in my journey. And I really believed wholeheartedly that with his influence with the brass, you know, w- with the powers that be at NASCAR, that he could be influential in getting, you know, more doors to be opened, you know, getting NASCAR to think more broadly. Um, maybe bring more sponsorship opportunities and sponsors to my racing team. And NASC- and Magic and I sat down and we talked about it. He indicated very clearly he knew what I was looking for. and he gave me the distinct impression that he was going to help me with regard to that, that goal, which was getting more financial support. Well, I was really surprised because after you know a little bit of time went by, I tried to reach back out to Magic, to see where we were. Um, had he been able to make any progress? Was he gaining any success? And my attempts to reach him were not reciprocated. I could not get in touch. I could not get back in touch with Magic. I couldn't get through his gatekeeper, his you know, assistant. Um, before it was very easy, relatively easy to do so. You know, my, my phone calls were responded to, they were returned. I got crickets after a while and I could not for the life of me figure out what had taken place? You know, I don't know. And I can only speculate that maybe the brass told Magic. It's like, you know what? We've been doing it this way. This is the way we'll continue to do it. Um, what we brought you in for maybe doesn't have anything to do with, you know, helping drivers, especially Bill, with regard to what he's trying to do. I don't know. I wasn't there. But all I can say directly and specifically is that the communication that I had established with him and felt really good about came to a grinding halt. And almost right afterwards, Magic left NASCAR as soon as he came in. It was very, very strange. I mean, he was under the radar. He came in for a little while. You didn't really hear of anything that was um, initiated or that took, you know, hold because of Magic's efforts. And next thing you know, Magic's out of the NASCAR, you know, diversity um, initiative. So I wish I knew what took place.
0: Let's talk about going forward and how not just in spite of, but in some ways because of all of the things that you had faced throughout your time as a racer, the decision to write this book. And although you stopped racing formally in 2012, earlier this year, you made a return for a one time event. Why the choice to have that race or participate in that race at the Atlanta Motor Speedway?
2: Well, you asked a number of questions. The first of which was, why did I decide to write this memoir? Um, I believe it could help people that no matter what their walk of life is, it's not a motorsports story, it's a motivational story with a motorsports backdrop. Okay. Most people thought it was like, you know, my autobiography. It's no, it's not my autobiography. It's really a means of helping people that might be struggling with, you know, challenges they have and how do they get from A to B, you know, what is it they need to take um, stock of. That's why I wrote this memoir, because people told me, it's like, Bill, your story is phenomenal. How did you break through and get to this plateau, to this, you know, promised land that so few of us have been able to infiltrate? It's not as if blacks don't wanna race cars. Believe me, we wanna race, but we are discouraged almost at every turn. And I just wasn't taking no for an answer. People said, you have to tell the story. And I said, you know what? Let me do that. Let me put this down on paper and hope hope that it benefits somebody. Even if it benefits one person, it was worth it to me. Um, So that's why I did it. Why did I come back to Atlanta Motor Speedway earlier this year? Because one of the things that I talked about in my book, and I mentioned briefly, was getting out of your comfort zone. Coming back and racing at the professional level in NASCAR after having not done it for 14 years is about as far as as you can get to getting out of your comfort zone. I could have easily continued to watch racing on TV, sitting on on my sofa or in my chair and watch racing. But I decided to practice what I preach. I'm gonna get out of my comfort zone. I'm gonna do something that I haven't done in quite a long time at the professional level, at one of the fastest tracks in NASCAR. Atlanta Motor Speedway is a track where we were averaging about 180 miles an hour. And during the May—I'm sorry—the March time frame when I came back, there was no practice, there was no qualifying before the green flag dropped, and you were going into turn one at speed. So here I am, not knowing exactly what to expect. I decided I'm going to do it. I'm going to practice what I preach. I'm going to prove to myself and everybody else who's watching that, yeah, if you believe in yourself, if there's something that you want to do, do it. Don't let anybody discourage you. And that's what I did. I hustled for the sponsorship. I got three great sponsors together. And then I got a team with me. And believe it or not, without any practice or qualifying, with a green flag, dropped it, you know. At race time, there I was in the turn one with you know thirty six other lunatics trying to race for a checkered flag. So I was really proud of myself. Um, I finished the race. I didn't finish it as high as I wanted to. Of course, that's going to be a lot of the you know reflection upon the fact that I haven't done it at the professional level for fourteen years. And if you are professional, you should be perfecting your craft every day. And I wasn't doing that. But I'm fortunate enough to have you know the physical ability, the hand eye coordination, the reflexes, and everything. I was able to bring that truck back in one piece. I was able to bring my race truck back without scrubbing it, crashing, running anybody else, being on the tow hook or anything else. You know, I finished the event. So I'm proud of myself. I'm glad I did it. I think I sent a message that, you know, if you do believe in yourself, you have a goal, a destination, you can get there.
0: You set a goal, you set multiple goals, but what you've also done is create a legacy that inspires other people who are within the sport and outside of the sport about how to navigate life when it seems really difficult. When you think about that legacy, how does it feel to see other drivers like Bubba Wallace continue in that pathway and sort of take the baton to the next level of the things that you started in demanding diversity, not just for the sake of diversity, but for really being able to have people do their very best.
2: Well, you see the smile on my face because I have a lot of pride in what it is I did that made the challenge and the journey that much easier for the next generation. And Bubba's clearly the next generation, you know, he's like less than half my age. So I'm glad that he has taken the baton and has run with it. I mean, I'm very proud of everything that he has been able to accomplish in the sport. Um, He did something that when I was racing, I couldn't do. He used his platform to affect change. I couldn't do it in the mid 2000s. NASCAR wasn't ready. The country wasn't ready. But due to the unfortunate events that took place last year, which started the Black Lives Matter movement with George Floyd and Ahmaud R. Brianna Taylor, et cetera, ears and eyes across the country were starting to open. And he stepped up and challenged NASCAR and almost demanded NASCAR to ban the Confederate flag. God bless him for that. I am so happy that he stood up and he put his foot down and NASCAR, was receptive and responsive and did that because I would have never thought when I was racing in my heyday in the mid 2000s that the Confederate flag would ever be banned, ever. It was as germane to NASCAR is like the phrase apple pie and Chevrolet was, you know, back traditionally. I mean, it was part of the NASCAR tradition was the Confederate flag. So while it alienated a lot of the you know diehard redneck core fans of NASCAR, what it does is it opens up a greater audience to NASCAR and something that NASCAR has been saying they want, which is to be more reflective of the country. Okay, here's that opportunity. They stepped up due to Bubba's encouragement. Thank goodness that he did it. Thank goodness NASCAR responded to it. And I hope that's just the beginning of a number of things and initiatives, what have you, to get more people of color out there. To take advantage of and enjoy this sport. I tell you that whenever I bring somebody out to their first NASCAR race, they become an immediate fan. They can't believe how much fun it is and how exciting it is to actually be at an event as opposed to standing, you know, sitting in front of their television and watching cars run around in the circle. If you're there, you just can't believe the power, the excitement, the sound, everything that's intoxicating about the sport. And these folks, like I tell you, when I bring out groups of people on oftentimes, they're like, wow. Let me know when the next race is. Let me know when you're going to host us again or something like that. Or even without me being there independently, they're like, you know what, I'm going to another race. So that makes me very, very proud. I'm very proud of what Bubba has done. I'm very proud of what NASCAR has done. I hope that the face of the sport begins to change.
0: That was former NASCAR driver Bill Lester. He recently published a new book called Winning in Reverse. Disrupted is produced by Jane Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. Our interns are Macy Carvalho and Kelly Langevin. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.